Hello and welcome to another round of For the Sake of the Song here on East Village Radio. I have a special guest on this week's program who hails from a band called Buddy Love, Mr. Doug Kazam, and we'll be talking with him about all sorts of things in just a little bit, but I'm going to kick off with a Buddy Love tune to uh, give you an idea of what you're in for, and then we'll talk more about who they are and what they do. This is Buddy Love with Emily.
Buddy Love. Now let me tell you a little bit about Buddy Love. The name might sound familiar to you from uh, The Nutty Professor. I'm not talking about the Eddie Murphy version. I'm talking about the classic original Jerry Lewis version where his hipster alter ego is Buddy Love. When the, when the nutty professor takes his, uh, his potion, he becomes something more than himself. He becomes a cooler, more happening guy who goes by the name of Buddy Love. And in fact, that was the name that uh, a bunch of young rock and roll upstarts took uh, right around 1979-1980 for their power pop band that uh, emerged in the New York City area and uh, made, made, I guess, one record at the time uh, and then subsequently there were other iterations of the band that recorded uh, a couple more records and now Buddy Love has reunited and they're playing live again and working on a brand new album and as I mentioned before we have guitarist and songwriter and founding member Doug Kazam in the studio to talk with us about the band and some of the other things he's been involved with. So, Doug, I want to start by asking you how Buddy Love first got together. Hey, Jim. Uh, Buddy Love first got together uh, when I was, I was working with my longtime songwriting partner, Alan Millman. Uh, we had uh, had a punk and new wave band uh, in 1977, uh, 1978, Alan Millman sect and Man Kazam, and uh, uh, I had gotten tired of the punk thing because really I was just a suburban kid and I was posing and I felt uncomfortable with the pose. Alan felt was comfortable uh, with that role because he was an avant-garde kind of crazy kind of guy. But I got to a point where I knew I was just playing a game, and I didn't want to do punk music anymore. So uh, I originally uh, started to make my own pop outfit, uh, which I called the Nice Normal Group because I ju it was just like a, a backlash against punk. And then uh, by accident, uh, a friend of mine uh, asked me to write a song that would be like a rock and roll version of Super Freak. <laughs> and uh, I, Alan and I got back together again because I asked him to assist me with the writing of that. And we wrote the song, and uh, it didn't work out for the guy who asked me for it, but it started the path of Buddy Love. Because uh, once, once I got Alan into the mindset of writing pop songs instead of instead of punk songs or new wave songs uh, because he was actually quite the, the pop music aficionado, uh, quite an encyclopedia, in fact, of pop music history and details of musical uh, genres and 
influences and really he was a fascinating he is still to this day quite a fascinating person to talk to so once we got on this pop format we started writing a whole bunch of different songs Emily being one of the ones that we wrote in very early on uh, and then but he, he knew he couldn't be the singer because he didn't have that kind of voice so me and him uh, we started auditioning musicians, uh, singers, bass players, drummers, and uh, we found the people who wound up being in Buddy Love in 1979-1980. That's Joey, the singer you heard, Scott, the bass player, uh, Rich, the drummer, myself on guitar, and uh, Alan was this, my songwriting partner and erstwhile manager, but we can talk about how that didn't work out later. Okay. <laughs> and it seems like Around that time, like circa 1980 in New York City, these days mostly what you hear about as far as what was going on in the kind of rock and roll underground at that time is the sort of no-wave stuff and post-punk stuff. But there was also a kind of a power-pop underground happening with bands like the Speedies and Student Teachers and the mm -hmm. Bongos and... Right, and that's why uh, we, felt, we felt that we had a shot at doing something here in the city because uh, it seemed like the, the timing was ripe for a group like us at that time where we were uh, uh, pop music with an edge, uh, with, with a, uh, a punk delivery, but with melodies and, and lyrics that were not... And uh, it, actually, we, we played the Ritz, we played, you know, CBGBs and uh, all around, and we were getting someplace, but you know how these things happen. If the, all the elements don't work out exactly right, and if you have a volatile person in the group uh, named Alan, <laughs> that uh, somehow these things explode in your face, and that's exactly what happened to us in 1980. Hmm. Well, we'll get into that a little more in a moment, but first I think we should hear a little more Buddy Love music now that people have a little background to go on. Uh, I want to play the song Can't Hold On. What can you tell us about that tune? Uh, actually, this is another song that we wrote right then in that, uh, in that same time period uh, around 1980. Uh, uh, the recording that you're going to hear is actually a new recording uh, because uh, two years ago we put out our first new record in 27 years, and half of those songs were uh, vintage recordings, and half of them were new recordings of the vintage material, uh, and this is one of the songs that uh, we redid recently, so enjoy. This is Can't Hold On on Eastfield Radio. <laughs>
buddy love. The songwriter and guitarist Doug Kazam, driving force behind the band, is my guest in the studio today. Hey, Jim. We are talking about his uh, pop and punk past, and the punk part of it started with a guy named Alan Millman. Now, I, I remember that around the same time that as a as a precocious trouser press reading <laughs> teen in the early 80s that was where i remember first seeing the name buddy love as well as alan millman uh and having never heard him i i got the impression that uh that he was sort of this this strange mysterious character well that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> What's what? What can you tell people about him? What was okay. what was his deal? Uh, Alan, Alan is a pop music encyclopedia. Uh, when I first met him, uh, it was probably in March of 1977, and literally the the first ten minutes we were together, we wrote two songs because he just spewed ideas out, and all I did was. You know, I put chords behind what he was doing. And I had never written a song before that. Uh, but he was so full of, uh, of uh, energy and creativity that it spilled out over everything. Uh, with that creativity and energy was a certain volatility as well. But uh, that's beside that, that we can talk about that later. In the meantime, his knowledge of pop music... Uh, not just pop music, but all kinds of music, jazz and blues, and his record collection was ridiculous. And in the summer of 1977, I probably spent every waking minute in his room listening to his record collection and uh, being educated, because really, my idea when I, before I met Alan... I wanted. I just just started playing guitar, and I said, "Gee, you know, maybe I'm good enough to be in a band." So my idea was to form a Deep Purple cover band. <laughs> and the, the, like I said, the first, where did you go wrong? The first moment that I met Alan, we wrote songs, and I, it never occurred to me that I could write my own songs. And once he, once he opened that idea up to me, then you know the floodgates were open, and I was writing songs ever since. So uh, I have to thank him for that. And actually, you know, it's easy to say well, I wrote songs. In those days, I was really following Alan's lead and uh, being a, a facilitator for his ideas. But I was not really writing the songs. I was filling in the backgrounds for him. It really it took me uh, a number of years to actually learn how to write songs after that. But, you know... Again, I have to thank Alan because if it wasn't for for his impetus, I would never even be writing songs. So, and how old were you guys when you when you started recording together? Uh, I was eighteen. Uh, he was probably twenty two. Uh, and really, uh, we we formed uh, our rock, our punk rock band, and almost immediately we went into the studio and recorded a. Uh, a Christmas, <laughs> a Christmas punk record, and it's actually considered to be the the first American punk record, not including the Ramones, of course, because they were out. But the it first American independent uh, punk single 
it, you know, before Rock Lobster and all, you know, the other ones. And we were out there. If you look on the list of punk American punk rock records, ours is in the in the top ten of of among the first. And this was with the Alan Millman sect. With the Alan Millman sect, right? Now I have a a tune here by the Alan Millman sect that uh, I want to play to give people an idea of what we're talking about. And uh, this is a song that I think you said has also been recorded by other people over time. That's right. It's, it's actually a medley. It's not one song. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most notably by uh, Urge Overkill, who uh, recorded it on their their first EP. And, uh, and they they didn't even know who wrote the song. I, it, I, found, I found out later because we asked them, how did you even know about this song? And they said that there was a mixtape that was circulating in their world. <laughs> and so they didn't even know who did the song, and, but they covered it anyway. And then after we, we told them, you know, that's our song, <laughs> then they finally credited us after the fact. But, you know, it was, but they really didn't even know wh where the song came from or who did it or anything. It was just on this mixtape floating around in, in who knows what. So... Well, this is uh, Stitches in My Head slash I Want to Kill Somebody. Now, if there's a, a better punk title than that, I don't know what it is. But uh, So here's a little bit of Doug's punk rock past, pre-buddy love with the Alan Millman sect. And this is it. <laughs> Just for fun. 
loud and fast, the way they used to do it back in the late 70s punk heyday. That was Man Kazam right there with No Boys Allowed, which, uh, as my guest Doug Kazam informs me, was basically uh, just another name that the Alan Millman sect went by, and the Alan Millman sect was who we heard before that with Stitches in My Head slash I Want to Kill Somebody. And those are two uh, late 70s New York punk nuggets that uh, have uh, kind of uh, attained some, I guess you'd call it cult cachet <laughs> over the years. And uh, while we were listening to that last tune, No Boys Allowed, Doug was uh, telling me an interesting tidbit about it. Do you want to yeah, sure. repeat that? Uh, we had played uh, CBGBs a number of uh, times in 1977, 1978, and at one time, and I guess it was probably in March, probably the right as soon as the band formed in March of 1977, we appeared at CBGB's, and uh, the Ramones were in the back at the bar, and uh, they, they heard this song, No Boys Allowed, and on their next album, they had a song called I Don't Care, which sounded remarkably similar. Hmm. We'll let you do the math on that one, <laughs> folks. Um, and so, as as Doug was explaining, it was after he had gone through his uh, punk phase with the Alan Millman sect and Man Kazam that uh, he sort of had his transformative experience and evolution into a popmeister and put together Buddy Love. Now it's, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna hear uh, a couple of the early Buddy Love tunes in a second that I guess were uh, among, among the first that you guys cut. Um, and when, when people hear this, it's gonna be pretty obvious that it's a huge shift. Yes. From yeah. the kind of stuff that you were Joel doing not very long before. Correct. Um, how did you kind of? Well, I guess you know what. First, I'm gonna I'm gonna play one of the songs, and then we'll talk about how you actually kind of worked the logistics of getting yourself to to that place. Okay. So, from from the uh, punk furor of <laughs> Man Kazam and the Alan Millman sect. Doug Kazam formed Buddy Love and made music like this. the ring. 
First recordings made by Buddy Love in what was it, seventy nine? Uh, was I think it was recorded early nineteen eighty and released in the summer of nineteen eighty. Okay, and obviously the polar opposite of uh, what we heard just a few moments ago from uh, Doug Kazam's time with Alan Millman sect and Man Kazam, both uh, stylistically and in feeling it's a very kind of uh there's a sort of an innocence about it a kind of romantic innocence and a feeling that harks back to the great pop music of previous decades like the beach boys and things like that right and uh as i mentioned uh, a big shift from punk to this kind of power pop sound. And how did you, just in, in terms of the mechanics of writing songs, how did you manage that shift? Well, what happened was, uh, in the summer of 78, uh, Man Kazam did a tour of the West, which was a complete disaster. And after we got back from that tour, I said, uh, you know, I can't pretend to be a punk when I'm really just a suburban kid from Long Island. So I felt I, I said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. And um, my backlash was to form a group that I called the Nice Normal Group, uh, which was sort of poppy, but, uh, you know, more like uh, conventional rock and roll as opposed to punk. Uh, then... Uh, uh, through an accidental uh, meeting with an old friend of mine who was looking to create a record that was going to be a fusion of something like Super Freak and Rock and Roll, uh, I asked Alan to help me write it. And we, we, we put together this song, which I, is called I'm Your Man. And uh, although it didn't work out for the guy who asked me to write it, Alan and I uh, liked the direction that we were going in with that. And again, uh, you know, we knew that Alan could not sing pop songs because he just didn't have that kind of voice. And he didn't have that kind of look either. He had, you know, an avant-garde, you know, edgy, new wave, punk-rocky kind of voice and look. And so we decided that we were going to put together a, a group from scratch 
And that's and, how you found Joey. Right. And we actually had a, in the ad in the Village Voice. And that's how we found Joey from the ad in the Village Voice. Uh, and we f- found Rich. Uh, how did we find Rich? A friend of a friend on Long Island said, I know this drummer. So we got Rich that way. Although we did have drummers from the Village Voice that we had come and go. And then we got Scott the same way from the Village Voice ad. And uh, we solidified pretty quickly. And then Alan and I started writing a whole bunch of these uh, uh, 60s-flavored new wave pop songs. Uh, And then I was also learning now uh, more of my craft in terms of songwriting. Where before I was more of Alan's musical facilitator, now I was actually contributing ideas and motifs and melodies and, I, and lines and stuff. And I was learning how to really write songs at that point, two years later. Now, had that kind of 60s-influenced pop sensibility been a part of your, of your musical makeup before, even before you started playing it? Yes and no. Uh, before I met Alan, my, my goal in life was to be in a Deep Purple cover band. Right. Uh, then after I met Alan, he helped me to rediscover uh, the childhood records that I loved. The, you know, Turn, Turn, Turn. I can remember in 1966 playing Turn, Turn, Turn all day one afternoon until the grooves were smooth. I mean, like you couldn't feel them anymore. Uh, so, you know, uh, the early Beatle records and Dave Clark Five and all that stuff that my brother David had in his record collection that I had access to because I was young uh, in 1966, what I was like, uh, maybe nine or ten. So, uh, I, so I had my brother's record collection, and then over the years I was was doing the Cream and and you know the Steppenwolf, and then I got into the heavy rock and the Led Zeppelin and all that other kind of stuff, and like most prepubescent teenage boys in the early 70s. I was into that kind of stuff. And like I said, I wanted to do a Deep Purple cover band. But as soon as I met Alan and we started writing these punk rock songs and I started listening to his record collection and it reminded me of the stuff that I loved when I was a a child. And then he showed me stuff I never even heard before. And uh, I started learning all kinds of... uh, about all kinds of pop music that I would never even considered, you know... (laughs) Like, you know, uh, Annette Funicello, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. He, uh, the Bonzo Dog Band, uh, yeah, the, his tastes ran the gamut. And he, you know, I would say, oh, you know, maybe I didn't like it, but at least now I had heard it. So, and then I started to assimilate all that stuff, and then I started to write my own things. Mm-hmm. So you, you would actually have gotten a, gotten a kind of inspiration from... Listening to some of that stuff of, of, like, oh, I can I can do this kind of thing in a song, I can I can have a bridge that goes to a different place or, exactly, that's exactly correct. And, and then the floodgates were were open. In that's a sense. right. That's correct. Once we started in this pop vein, uh, we were mining Roy Orbison and and uh, the Beatles and the Birds and. Uh, Roy Orbison was actually a big, big influence on a lot of that early Buddy Love uh, songwriting uh, because we were looking for, again, Buddy Love was a character. He was like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of character. And uh, there was 
there was a, uh, a fun part of him and there was a, a dark part of him and we wanted to make sure that the dark part was part of, this, of the psyche of it. That's why, so we were drawing on our punk rock and in terms of the delivery, even though the pop part of it was frothing and bubbly on top, but it was actually, there was some darkness underneath. Now, how did you guys come to use the name Buddy Love to begin with? Again, uh, Alan didn't have the kind of pop voice that we knew we needed for the material that we were writing. Right. And uh, originally, we came up with the idea of Buddy Love because he, he was not a pop person, but he was going to try to transform himself into Buddy Love. That didn't work out, but oh, we I still see. kept the idea of it uh, even after he'd, we'd, he decided that he, he wasn't going to be the singer. Right. Now, did when you guys first started playing out with, with Joey and, and the whole band, uh, did people... F- think that Buddy Love was a guy? Yeah, they thought Joey was Buddy Love. Uh-huh. And that, remember, uh, you can imagine that that caused some, some problems with Alan, who wanted to be in control of everything. Uh, if Alan ever hears this, don't take this the wrong way, but the dude, you're a megalomaniac. <laughs> and uh, he wanted everyone to know that he wrote the songs. He he was the record producer. He was the manager. He was, you know, the floor wax and the dessert topping, you know. And when Joey got the attention as Buddy Love, it irked him to no end. And uh, that once that started happening and we actually started getting some attention, uh, Alan started to self-destruct. And... Uh, he started causing all kinds of tensions within the band. And again, because I was the musical liaison between him and the musicians, I was always the guy who had to be the bad guy delivering the bad news. If someone wasn't playing a note right or Joey wasn't delivering the song in just such a way. And uh, so I I got a reputation as being the bastard, but in, in reality, it was, I was just, the the messenger, so to speak. Right. Alan was, you know, pulling my strings. And I can admit that now because I'm I'm fully confident in my own ability to write a song. At that in those days, though, I I I thought I needed Alan desperately because I didn't really have any. I I had musical ideas, but not ideas for songs. So and his ideas were so potent that I had no problem just going with it. Well, I think at this point it might be a good idea to give people a little more of the early Buddy Love sound. Now, this uh, this song I'm going to play next, "Party Girl," this was the other side of the of that single, Correct. Sheila, right? And uh, as we were talking about off mic earlier, uh, this original Buddy Love single, Sheila, backed with "Party Girl," is uh, these days pretty much of a collector's item, and. Uh, you you were telling me about uh, a little bit about that. Every every so often, I get an email from who knows where around the world. Uh, many times from Japan. Uh, th- there's a contingent of uh, power pop maniacs in Japan. Uh, that they, they'll offer me ridiculous amounts of money for a copy of uh, for an original Sheila single, 
The most recent one was for $250. I think I have like five left in my personal collection, which I won't part with. But, you know, it always blows my mind when someone makes an offer like that because it's ridiculous. <laughs> so don't even ask him. Yeah, don't even ask. He's not giving them up. <laughs> But you can hear one of the songs right now. So this was the B-side of the original Buddy Love single, Sheila. And this is Party Girl. studio applause we hear at the end of that? It's totally fake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of a, on, on the, just on those last notes with the, between the bass and, and the guitar at the end of that, there's a little bit of a who feeling. Absolutely. Early who was a big influence on my punk come pop delivery. Mm -hmm. Well, they were, after all, kind of the original power pop band and early on. Absolutely. And even to this day, the early Pete Townsend uh, guitar motifs ring very strong in my in my repertoire. Mm. There's an element of that song that has a a very kind of '50s orientation, you know, with those with those backup vocals and stuff. That uh, like the one we heard before, Sheila. There's a uh, it captures a very kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, a very kind of innocent. You can feeling. use that word because. 
In, in fact, even in the writing process, there was a certain innocence involved mm -hmm. because uh, we, we purposely didn't want to make the subject matters too deep. So we wanted to keep it innocent. So the thing I wonder, listening, listening to these kinds of songs, was there uh, a kind of a contrast going on between, I mean, you guys were playing songs like this at places like CBGB's in the height of the, you know, punk and early new wave era. What was, what was the... Uh... Well, actually, it, it worked because uh, in those days, there were a lot of pop bands that were doing, that were, that were morphed from new wave DIY, you know, local guys who wanted to make some music. So at CBGB's, that was, that was more common than you would imagine. It wasn't just all punk and avant-garde stuff going on there. Uh, so we fit right in. And uh, we, when we played uh, uh, different places, uh, Oh, there was this underground club on Second Avenue that we, it was a biker bar. And, and when I saw, we walked in there and it was all bikers and I got a little worried. Again, because I'm a suburban kid, <laughs> you know, I was 19 or 20 years old maybe. And they went wild for us. I mean, and it, with, and it was ridiculous. I mean, I, I, very shocking because I never thought that they would get it, but they really did. So... It was it, at that time. It, you know, it was okay to morph into something else. Mm -hmm. And you'd also mentioned while we were listening to that song that uh, that was your your first key change. Correct, <laughs> the first modulation. And then uh, after that worked out so well, uh, Alan wanted to do a key change in almost every song. So <laughs> many of the songs we wrote after that uh, had key changes all over the place. Mm. Even even uh, can't hold on had a key change at the end of it. Right. There's uh, a great clip that you can find on YouTube if you look up Buddy Love on YouTube. From uh, I guess it was from 1980, right? The Uncle Floyd Show. Yeah, that's right. For those of you who may not know the Uncle Floyd Show, it was uh, well. Why don't, you, why don't you explain the okay. Uncle Floyd Show? Uncle Floyd on the surface was a kitty show. But really, it was very subversive. Uh, he was a, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, he was mocking kid sh kitty shows. It was like on a UHF channel from, you know, a Spanish cha uh, channel, Patterson uh, Canel Cuatro y Uno, uh, Patterson Nueva Jersey. And, uh, it was like Channel 68 or something. Or something like, a, I think it was 41. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, but so on the surface it was a kiddie show, but really it was a totally subversive show, and uh, he ha the, his writers were sticking in all kinds of adult humor, uh, sort of like Soupy Sales was doing, you know, uh, 15 years earlier, where the humor was going over kids' heads completely, and the the parents were laughing at it. That's the kind of show it was. So uh, he had uh, many many uh, rock groups. Uh, power pop groups, punk groups, all different. I mean, if you look on YouTube, he, there's a zillion different groups that are uh, of, that were on his show. Us being one of them. And it's uh, if you if you check it out, it's great to see. There's just uh, just a perfect kind of uh, time capsule of uh, of that 
of that moment in in both in Buddy Love's career and in music in general. Right. You know that uh, the kind of youthful ebullience, you know, that uh, is a real sort of uh, joie de vivre about the whole thing. <laughs> and uh, these, you see these fresh-faced young lads giving it their all. Right. Um, but as you had uh, alluded to earlier, the initial incarnation of Buddy Love didn't last for very long. No, it didn't, because, uh, like I said, uh, Alan had a problem with uh, not being the center of attention, and even though he he put himself in the background, he never really reconciled to the fact that he was in the background. And when Joey began being mistaken for Buddy Love, I think that uh, sent him over the edge, and uh, Alan... uh, put undue pressure on all of us in the band, and the band flew apart violently. And what did you do after that? Uh, What I did after that was uh, I actually formed a a new version of Buddy Love, uh, this time all uh, local Long Island people. Again, I continued to to write songs with Alan because I was, I, I still am very impressed with his creativity and energy uh and uh, so we started writing a, a new batch of songs and uh we recorded an album that was just called buddy love uh where i sang lead and it actually got some some good reviews in the power pop circles ira robbins and john borak they all gave it you know uh, great reviews it was on the the first yellow pills compilation uh and it, I became a, you know, I won't say a celebrity because, you know, a worldwide celebrity, yes, to 150 people. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm well known to these 150 power pop fanatics around the world. A cult hero. A cult hero. That's who I am. <laughs> I became. And uh, there is a whole uh, in between that period of the original Buddy Love band splitting up and over the last couple of years coming back together there's been a whole uh, a whole another life in music for for Doug Kazam that I want to touch on a couple of disp- different aspects of and give you an idea of how his own songwriting developed so that when you hear uh the music that we're going to play from uh, Buddy Love today, you'll understand how it developed. Uh, I want to start by playing one of your solo songs called All About Diane. And uh, maybe you can say a little bit about uh, the writing of this song. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, the day that uh, Princess Diana was killed... Of course, the, every news media in the world was reporting it, and you couldn't get away from it anywhere. On television, in the newspapers, on the radio, uh, it was, everything was about Diana. And uh, I have a friend named Diane who was uh, going through a divorce, 
and she was she is to this day also a selfish kind of person so i took the idea of everything being all about diana and i morphed it into being all about diane this is how she thinks about herself and that's how i came up with the idea of this for this song so this is doug kazam outside of buddy love and you'll get a little bit of an idea of how the uh the songwriting mechanics of uh, the Buddy Love engine work by listening to this tune. This is all about Diane.
beautiful song there by Doug Kazam, my guest today here on East Village Radio, for the sake of the song, with uh, a tune that he wrote outside of the world of his band Buddy Love, just on his own there, and playing everything too. Right, and there was a, a period of about eight or nine years where I just sequestered myself in the basement. I didn't really try to get out there in the world of music at all. I just wrote songs from my own head, so to speak. This is one of the songs I, I recorded and wrote that way. And you can really hear that by this point. I mean, on those early Buddy Love cuts that we played just a little bit ago, you could already hear the, uh, the wheels turning in, uh, in Doug's songwriting head. But... By the time that he wrote this one, you can really hear that he had gotten the mechanics of manipulating the pop song fully under his hands, you know, just making his way very deftly through these uh, these pretty intricate and pretty elegant harmonic uh, well, shifts. You. It really took me about... Uh after I started working with Alan, it probably took me a, a good 10 years to really know how to write a song. Even though I, I was co-writing songs with him right from the get-go, I was just following orders. You know, I know nothing. I'm just following orders. But it took me, like I, like I said, probably took me about 10 years to really understand what songwriting was all about. Hmm. Well, it certainly seems that you understood it with that song. And uh, before we go on to other stuff, I want to just give people one more taste of that, uh, that era of your songwriting with the tune called Why Do You Do What You Do?
There's some more of the pop, of the pop artistry of Doug Kazam, of Buddy Love and Elsewhere, with a song called Why Do You Do What You Do, another tune from that post-Buddy Love period when he was kind of sequestered in his basement in, uh, in Rockville Center working on, uh, working on his, his own little secret pop masterpieces. Exactly. And uh, that wasn't the only outlet that uh, he has had in between the uh, original Buddy Love Band and the current Reformation, though. Uh, something else that I want to touch on is uh, a project you had going for a little while called the RC Flyers. And why don't you tell people what that was about? Uh, RC Flyers, it was, again, it was a... Uh, uh, a very organic and natural thing that had just happened. Uh, my friend from Alan Milmansek days, Gary Feldman, actually he was friends with Alan. Uh, they were all in an Oceanside group of musicians. There was uh, Gary and Mark and Stephen and Alan, and they were all buddies. And I was, I came in to that group as an outsider. And uh, uh, Gary moved into my neighborhood in, uh, like, 1995. Uh, and we, be, we struck up our friendship again. And uh, he, he, he is a potent songwriter as well, and, but he hadn't been writing anything for years. Uh, and I said to him, why aren't you writing stuff, you know? I mean, you should be doing that because you're so good. And so uh, I, I put a fire under his ass, and he started writing some stuff. And in fact, what happened was uh, we started we started writing a song together, uh, uh, and we were actually like faxing the lyrics back and forth to each other for like weeks, and then we would meet in his house, uh, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, and work on the song that way. And then uh, we started writing a lot of other songs together, or taking I took some some uh, fragments of songs that I had and we put them together with some songs that he was writing and we uh, decided again uh, just for our own amusement uh, to put together a collection of songs which we recorded in my basement studio and originally it was the name of the band was Radio Flyer uh, and I had a you know a website you know Radio Flyer blah 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 and it turns out that the little red wagon makers took offense to the fact that we were using their name and slapped an injunction on us, even though we hadn't sold a single thing. So we had to change the name, so we changed it to RC Flyers. Uh, RC meaning sort of like Rockville Center, because uh, that's where we were living at the time. And uh, then also we, we took the, uh, the radio-controlled flyer idea as well, and we morphed it all together, so we had RC flyers, and then we had like the little airplane on the cover, you know. <laughs> but wasn't it also uh, RC for Radio City? Uh, that was another reason as well, because uh, uh, Gary was the uh, one of the principal uh, leaders of uh, the, a group called Radio City, which was around the Oceanside area at the same time that Alan Milman sect and Man Kazam were. And they were appearing in those clubs in the city at the same time we were. But they were always in the pop vein while we were doing punk. And uh, secretly, I, I, I was, had more affinity toward their music than my own. 
because I was, face it, you know, I was a suburban kid posing as a punk, and it was a, a, a pose. Their music was really more in line with what I was feeling in my gut. Uh, and uh, many times I would sit in with them and, pl and play with them live because they needed extra instrumentation. And I was like a sponge. I could, you know, listen to a song once and then know it and just play it. So they didn't have to spend a lot of time teaching me. So uh, I, I played with them a couple of times. But uh, really, Gary's songwriting was a gigantic influence on me when I started formulating my own songs later. Mm -hmm. So then when he moved into my neighborhood, that's one of the reasons why I jumped on him so quick because I already had great respect for him. And, I, and he thanks me to this day for, for getting him out of, his, out of his rut and getting him writing songs again. So here you have uh, two graduates of the uh, late 70s, early 80s, New York power pop school coming together to uh, to create something I guess you you might call sort of a a more a more mature sort of fully realized kind of pop music with uh, the RC Flyers and uh, I'd like to give you a little taste of that. This is a song that uh, that they wrote called Frustrated.
That's Radio... Or not Radio Flyers, sorry. RC Flyers. Don't want to get you guys arrested. Uh, Too late. Uh, Tearing You Down is the name of that track. And uh, Frustrated was the one we heard before that. Uh, you're listening to East Village Radio here. And Doug Kazam of Buddy Love is with us in the studio. And RC Flyers, as he had mentioned, was one of his projects in between the uh, original Buddy Love band and the current reformation of that band. But uh, that last track that we heard there, Tearing You Down, is actually part of the, uh, the new Buddy Love agenda because, uh, as I've mentioned a couple of points throughout the show, the original members of Buddy Love are now back together and making new music, and they have an album in the works. Uh, now, how close are you guys to being done with that? Uh, almost completely finished with it. In fact, we're going into the studio next week to just put the uh, finishing touches on certain tracks here and there. Hopefully, we'll start the mixing, and it's really almost done, like any, any minute. Hopefully, it, it'll be out by this summer. And the title? I think we're going to call it Crying Town. Okay. Well, Crying Town, as you will discover in a minute, is uh, a rather exceptional song from that album and represents uh, kind of another evolutionary step in uh, not only the, uh, the Buddy Love story, but also in the in the songwriting direction of of Doug, and you'll you'll hear. I will talk about it after you hear it, but I'll let you hear it for yourself first to understand what I'm talking about. So this is Crying Town, which is going to be on the new Buddy Love album. But I think this the it's available currently as a as a digital single. Is that oh, right? That's right. That's right. Just this week, in fact, uh, we released it. It's uh, available. From iTunes, am I allowed to say that? Sure. iTunes, uh, CD Baby, uh, Rhapsody, all the digital uh, distributional outlets have it. Uh, so go ahead and buy it. <laughs> all right. This is a song that, I mean, I, c- I can tell you that I have not been able to stop listening to it. And I imagine it will have the same effect on many other people. This is called Crying Town. Don't try to bring me down Just as my feet hit solid ground I'll be found On a lonely street in crying town Did I hear you say Something you just can't take away Say it to my face Don't turn my night times in Days I've wasted trying to find you I'm in your power, girl, I can't deny you I've taken more than 
Crying Town, brand new music from Buddy Love, the reunited Buddy Love, all the original members, and of course, songwriting prowess of uh, my guest, Doug Kazam, and uh, that song has uh, kind of an interesting genesis. Do you want to sort of give people the thumbnail sketch of, of that? Yeah, sure. Uh uh, my wife's childhood friend is a guy named Tommy Burns, who as a, was always a, a prodigy guitar player, a virtuoso, even at a very young age. And we were talking like seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, subsequently, he played with uh, Brian Setzer. And then currently, and for the past 12 years, he's been Billy Joel's musical director and, of course, the guitar player on, on his tours and on his records. Uh, uh, so uh, about 11 years ago, him and his family came over to hang out, which they do every so often. And I was playing him some of my recordings in my little basement studio. And he says, oh, by the way, I have this song idea. Uh, 
maybe you can finish it. And I had never written anything with, with him before or since, by the way, but he, for some reason he, he felt comfortable giving me this fragment. And it was uh, this, this song with throwaway lyrics and the, a ver- the verse in the chorus, but again, there was, no, there was no crying town per se. It was just, you know, just throwaway syllables just so, to have something to sing. And I sat on the song uh, for about a year before I actually got around to working on it. And then when I did work on it, I, I finished it in a, in a fury, and uh, it immediately became part of my personal repertoire of songs that, you know, I have my favorite songs that I like to sing when I'm sitting around in, in my basement by myself, and that became one of them. Uh, and again, I sat on the song for eight or nine years until last year when uh, this uh, Buddy Love was looking for material for the album that we're releasing right now, and I was playing the guys uh, many, many, many of my songs that I've been accumulating, and uh, this one came up, and, I, and they all agreed that this was a winner, and uh, so we started uh, doing the song, and we recorded a version of it, then I asked Tommy if he would, since he co-wrote the song, uh, if he would uh, play on it as well. And when he heard our, our recordings of it, he said, no, if I'm going to do it, let's do it from scratch. And so he took over production of the song, and the result was what you just heard. Right, which is obviously well worth the effort. and Well worth it. In fact... After, after we saw the result of this song, uh, we, it raised the bar for us as a band because now whenever we do anything, we say, how does it stack up to that? And if it doesn't, we'll either improve it or abandon it hmm. because, you know, once the bar is raised, you can't lower it again. Right. Do you want to uh, mention the other thing that you were telling me about? Uh, about this song, about uh... oh, uh, so currently uh, uh, Tommy is working with Alexa Ray Joel, that's Billy Joel's daughter, on her new album, and she liked the song as well, and I believe she's going to uh, rewrite some of the lyrics and put it on her record. So uh, that would be nice. I could actually make some money, and uh, you know, it's funny when we talk about money. You know, we've been I've been in writing songs for X amount of years and have had limited amounts of success in terms of financial uh, gain. But harking back to the days of Alan Millman's sect and that disastrous tour of the West in 1978, we had a song. We, we, we recorded one of our shows, I think it was in Denver, on a cassette, you know, with one microphone and a cassette, and then uh, in the, the late 80s, Alan put together a Alan Millman sect uh, Man Kazam uh, compilation CD. And he took that song and he, from the cassette, the song was called Nicotine Caffeine. And he put it on that compilation. And again, it, you know, it was, it was in print, it went out of print. Uh, and then about four years ago, I got an email from NBC Universal asking me if I was the copyright owner of such and such a song, the song called Nicotine Caffeine. And I said, yes, I am. Uh, why? 
And they said, well, this is just before there was going to be a writer's strike. And they had TV at the TV show House was in production. And they had uh, one show that was almost finished. But all they had to do was this uh, musical post-production. So they, they licensed this song from us, recorded on a cassette in Denver, and put it on the TV show House. <laughs> and it was the biggest, my biggest payday in the music industry ever. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not going to tell you how much I made, but it was a bundle. <laughs> and uh, how did they hear it? I still don't know how they heard it. Uh, the, the show itself, the episode was about a punk rock singer who was having some kind of brain disorder. And, <laughs> uh, and it was, the brain disorder not only uh, made him creative, but it also caused him all kinds of health problems. <laughs> so somehow or another, someone at NBC Universal knew the song and said, why, this is the perfect song for this situation. And the next, within two weeks, it was on the air. Uh-huh. I mean, but the, from the first email to the time the deal was done, and then it was on the air in two weeks. I, literally, it happened just like that. Amazing. So it, it was, you know, I, I wish I could find another deal like that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should record your next show on a cassette. Uh, I, maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we were saying about Crying Town, that's obviously, you know, you're saying it's raised the bar for the new Buddy Love music. And it certainly seems to be uh, kind of branching out into a whole nother realm. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I, you had mentioned Roy Orbison influence earlier on. And this right. has a little bit of that. I feel it's sort of like you know, Roy Orbison and, and Rick Nelson jamming with the raspberries or something. Right. And, you know, if uh, Roy Orbison is actually a gigantic influence, not only on Buddy Love, but on my thought processes when I'm writing songs in general because uh, a lot of people don't pay attention to to the what's going on in his songs but there's there's a depth in his songs that is uh incredible and most people just you know write him off as pretty woman and that's all they think about but if you listen to all of the torch songs that he wrote and they're so uh, again, there's a, a darkness to his material oh, yeah. that uh, that resonates with me. Mm. So, Roy Orbison is big in my mind. Mm. Yeah, and there's that kind of there's that you know that same kind of beautiful melodic flow in Crying Town, and we are also f- fortunate enough to have, uh, or I guess I should say, Doug has been uh, kind enough to. Uh, let us hear a couple of rough mixes from the forthcoming album. So I'd like to let everybody hear a little bit of those as well. Uh, one of which is a tune called Almost in Tears. Do you have anything you can say about the writing of that song? Uh, this is another one of those songs I wrote about uh, 10 years ago. And again, it, this was when I was just in my basement doing my own thing, not paying attention to what's on the radio or what am I going to do with this later? I just wrote it for my own head. And again, when we were looking for material for the new recording, uh, this song came up and everyone liked it and here it is. Okay. So this is the rough mix of Almost in Tears, which is going to be
on the new Buddy Love album. Almost in Tears. That's the rough mix of a new tune that's going to be on the brand new Buddy Love album coming out imminently, which uh, is tentatively titled 
Crying Town. And uh, as you know, if you've been listening for the last little while, songwriter and guitarist of Buddy Love, Doug Kazam, is my guest. And, uh, you know, listening to uh, some of the bass lines on, on some of the new stuff, I'm, I'm remembering what I, what I thought when uh, I saw you guys play a couple months ago, that, uh, that, that influence of the early Who that we talked about mm-hmm. early on, that's that's also going on in in in, uh, in some of the bass work. You can some of a kind of ant whistle feeling to some of the bass lines in your songs. Absolutely, and uh, again, we're a simple unit. Uh, for years and years, we were just guitar, bass, and drums. It's only recently that we added a keyboard player to the mix. But even so, uh, as the only guitarist in the band, I was keeping the punk pop, the punk new wave kind of rhythm going. And Scott used to uh, inject the melodies the way Paul McCartney or John Entwistle would. Uh, so, uh, and many of the uh, bass lines that he plays are very Entwistle-y in nature. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something you can hear. Um, well, I know that uh, Doug is uh, actually uh, on a tight schedule, and he's going to have to skedaddle out of here pretty soon. So... Uh, we're gonna kind of wrap things up with him as uh, as uh, quickly as we can to let him move on. But uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about before you go is, uh, what is the feeling? I mean, you started playing with these guys. What is it now? Over over thirty years ago, right? <laughs> And I think I know where this is going. <laughs> well, no, no, nothing weird. Just uh, and there's a, and then obviously a very long period of time where you didn't play together, and now here you are again with Buddy Love, and and you had, as we mentioned, different iterations of Buddy Love in between with different guys. Right. Well, let's th- first of all let's say that Rich Starr, the drummer, our current drummer for Buddy Love. He was in different versions of Buddy Love after that 1980 version. He was also the drummer on the RC Flyer project as well, and I've been in constant contact with him the whole time. Uh, we had a cover band in the early 2000s called uh, Midlife Crisis. Hmm. Uh, uh, so we were playing around Long Island doing our own wacko covers like uh, Pink Floyd, Arnold Lane. Uh. <laughs> So, you know, not not your typical cover band. Right. So Rich and I have been, you know, friends and constant companions ever since. Mm-hmm. So, but it's in far, as far as uh, getting back together with uh, Joey and uh, Scott, uh, the initial reaction that I had to uh, working with those guys again was, wow, it's nice to be with grown-ups this time. Because at the at those in those days we were we were such kids, and you know with our adolescent issues, that we could not be friends. We weren't friends. We were trying to be, we were trying to do a business in a, in a music, but we were not prepared to do it that way because we weren't friends. If we had been friends in high school and then did a band together. That would have been different, but we were not friends that way. We met through an ad 
you know, uh, village voice ad, and we were we were thought that we were going to put together this band and we were going to be you know take over the world, and it didn't work out that way because everyone had their own agenda. So uh, now, then, when we got back together, and I said, "Oh, you know, we're adults now, and it's actually nice to not have to worry about those stupid issues that we had when we were kids." And of course, we have our new issues, which we won't go mm. into. But, but all of those old issues are, you know, are not an issue anymore because you know we have, we have houses and f- car payments and families and all these things that are way more important than is the band going to have a hit record or not. Mm. And our, you know, so we put it in perspective, so to speak. So it's a, it's a completely different ball game now than it was 30 years ago. Mm. And do you have, uh, when you're either playing live or working on stuff in the studio, do you have a kind of ever a sense of sort of musical deja vu? (laughs) Always. Always. Because uh, literally from the first day that we reunited and we were able to just whip the songs out that we did 27 years earlier like it happened yesterday... uh, the lear- learning new material was way more difficult than getting back up to speed with what we did 30 years ago. You know, that was not a problem at all. It was like deja vu, literally like deja vu. I mean, we just started playing and every song just came out whole practically. There wasn't a whole lot of relearning involved. Learning new material was a completely different story, though. Uh, for some reason, that was m- more like pulling teeth than than just revisiting the old stuff. But uh, now we're, way, we're past that as well. Well, the thing that struck me when I saw you guys live recently is that uh, it seems like there's just as much uh, vibrancy and, and energy to what you're doing now as there is to the you know to the records at least that you made uh 30 years ago i think that's attributed to the fact that i'm actually having fun with it this time because uh way back when i was always under someone's shadow uh whether it was alan or joey because joey was always the focal point of the group and Again, I was maybe it was my immaturity at the time, but I, I felt inferior. Something, something about the situation made, made me feel like I was, I was not, I didn't deserve to be there. But now, I don't feel that way at all. I can, I'm rolling with the punches. I'm having fun every moment. And therefore, my performance is much more carefree and... I don't give a crap if I make a little mistake. Like, I used to worry about every little thing. Now I don't care. Because if I'm not having fun, what's the point of doing it, you know? I'm 53 years old. Uh, it, I shouldn't be stressing out about if I made a mistake in a song. Mm-hmm. From, you know? <laughs> well, it works out uh, to your advantage, I guess, because, you know, there's this... Uh... And as a result my performances are much stronger. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, 
I can't speak authoritatively about that, obviously not having seen not having seen you perform in 1980, but I can speak authoritatively about seeing you perform currently. And uh, I was fortunate enough to see Buddy Love play at uh, Otto's Shrunken Head right here in uh, in the East Village a couple of months ago, and it pretty much blew my doors off. So I would heartily recommend to anyone who has the opportunity to see them when they pop up again to do so, not to mention... We will probably be playing at Otto's again uh, within the next month or two, uh, but uh, if you're local, check your listing. <laughs> and is there anything that, uh, any information that you can give folks about where to look for the n- new album and stuff like that, or any website information you want to give? Uh, our our Official band website is buddylove.us. Uh, there is a MySpace, and that would be myspace.com slash officialbuddylove. I have a, a blog about the, the daily goings-on of the life of Doug in Buddy Love, and that is buddylovetoday.blogspot.com. And if you want to buy Crying Town or any other Buddy Love uh, CDs or digital downloads, you can go to either cdbaby.com or uh, in your iTunes store. Uh, just put uh, Buddy Love in the search. And uh, just don't get us confused with the, uh, the rap rapper Buddy Love. <laughs> uh, that's uh, something I'm still working to have straightened out and separated. But uh, so there you go. Okay. Well, I know Doug's got places to be, so I'm going to let him go, but I am quite appreciative of him taking the time to come down and talk about this stuff. And thank you very much for having me. Well, it's been a real treat. It has. And uh, we're going to play a little more Buddy Love exit music for Doug Kazam here on East Village Radio. Another rough mix sneak peek from the new album. This is hard to get.
I have